welcome back to La Pollera y el Congo. My name is Ayala Watson and this is episode three of my honors thesis project where I am studying the liberation of Afro-Latinx college-age women from traditional beauty standards. In this episode, we are going to get into the data. So we are going to actually be listening to the narratives and the anecdotes from the women that I interviewed. I will not be giving any sort of identifying information, but we're going to go through some of those themes that I mentioned briefly in the last episode, and we're going to get into deeper into a deeper understanding of this part of the research project for my psychology requirement here at school. So from what I've been taught, uh, qualitative research goes a little something like this. So after you think of a question, you have to go through the steps of conducting that research. So we talked about um, going through the IRB if you have human subjects. We talked a little about uh, we talked a little bit and went over the research, the history, the background, um, and we talked about putting together questions. So this part, since we're talking about the data, we're going to talk about how we specify what information we want to use to back up our research and to kind of find the answers that we're looking for. So in shorter terms, we have to go through the data and analyze the data. Okay. So the data that I'm working with is the answers that the women gave me through these interviews that were recorded and transcribed. Once they were (laughs) transcribed, I then had to go through the go through the transcriptions and figure out what all of the women's answers had in common. Not every single one of them, but what were some of the reoccurring themes and uh, similar experiences that these women talked about. The way that I organized those themes was through coding. And we're going to get into coding right now. So there are different um, approaches to coding your coding or organizing your data during qualitative research. There's ethnography, which looks at more of a exploratory approach, right? You're describing what the person said and what they did when they said it, um, how they interacted with the stories, how their mood changes, how um, it, it gives a more um, holistic perspective, but it doesn't necessarily get into the specifics of the why more so the what and the how i decided to use thematic analysis for my coding for my organization so through thematic analysis i am taking the information that i get putting them into subcategories or codes and those codes would later create larger themes in which i then present 
and talk about and they would act as the results of my data collection of the study before i get into the specifics i'm going to try to give an everyday example of the process of what thematic analysis and coding is without using um, research terms. So let's say, for example, you have a pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream. So Ben and Jerry's ice cream is usually never plain. You have Ben and Jerry's, the brand. You have the name of the ice cream. Let's say half-baked is the name of the ice cream. Um, but just by the name half-baked, you won't really know what makes up the content of the ice cream. So you have to look at the ingredients. So in small white print at the bottom of the pint, there will be a description of what those ingredients are. So for half-baked, there's chocolate and vanilla ice creams. So chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream. Gobs of chocolate chip, cookie dough. So that's one thing, chocolate chip, cookie dough. And fudge brownies. Cool. So just by reading that and without even opening the pint, I could still be kind of confused. So is it that the chocolate and vanilla ice creams are separate? Are they mixed together? like Napoleon, Neapolitan, Neapolitan, like Neapolitan ice cream? Is it that the chocolate chips are inside the cookie dough or are the chocolate chips separate from plain cookie dough? And then the fudge brownies is pretty the only self-explanatory self thing in this list. So comparing this to coding, I would have my data, which would be the content of the ice cream, every ingredient here. So my chocolate ice cream, I would have to put all my chocolate ice cream on one side and categorize it. I would then have to put all my vanilla ice cream on another side and categorize it. Then I would have to be specific that I'm looking for chocolate chips inside the cookie dough, put it on another side and categorize it and then I would be looking for fudge brownies on the other side and categorize it these different categories are not touching yet they are separate they're in their own container and now if I want to create the half-baked ice cream I have to mix them all together and put them in the pint so in a similar way I take what the women tell me, I take their stories and their answers to each question. I put their stories into smaller categories. So let's say the chocolate chip cookie dough is um, the consistent mentioning of hair in these interviews. So in one way or another, the women bring up hair, either the importance of hair or they don't like their hair, or they choose to do their hair one way than the other, or the way their perception of hair um, changed throughout time. Nonetheless, it's hair, right? So that would be my chocolate chip cookie dough. But then, 
when I put all these ingredients together and create the half-baked flavor that goes into one pint and one cup, then we would get into, well, how does hair connect to the broader question of beauty standards in Afro-Latinx college women? And once you put that label on it, Ben and Jerry's, Vermont's finest, we get into the even bigger picture. How does hair relate to the liberation of Afro-Latinx college-age women from traditional beauty standards? I hope that made sense. But if not, don't worry. We are going to get into the actual data very soon. And hopefully by the end of this episode, it'll be a little more clear the process that I went through to collect, code, and analyze the data to now show it to y'all. Before getting into the data, I want to first go over what thematic analysis is. I'm going to start by going through the definition given by researchers Braun and Clark. They state that thematic analysis is a method for identifying and analyzing patterns of meaning in qualitative data. So they describe the process of creating themes out of interviews and qualitative data in, in, in a few phases. Phase one is to get very familiar with the data. Not only did I do all of the interviews by myself, I also had to transcribe them and edit the transcriptions. While I was doing that, I was able to take note of different things that were said that I thought were very interesting um, within the answers of the women that I interviewed. Phase two is to go through coding the data. So codes are little snippets here and there that can develop meaning further once deeper analyzed and put together with other codes. So once you have your code book that will be filled with many details and clumps of data that once sorted through will come together to create larger themes in which we report as our result. Codes could be from different meanings, cultural concepts, the basic of what folks are trying to say when they are relaying the information. And the thing about thematic analysis is that you're not trying to apply any sort of theories that already exist into what they're saying. You're mostly trying to take the information that they're giving you and then lay it out to then see where they have in common, what recurring issues folks may have brought up, and finally create a thematic map. The thematic map is going to help the researcher, in this case me, figure out what narratives they want to add into their results section of the paper, in this case, my podcast. So without further ado, I'm gonna present with I'm gonna present to y'all some of the themes that I came up with and then we will go one by one to talk about them and listen to what the women who participated had to say. So the first theme was intergenerational progression of awareness. So to me, that meant that there were instances where, let's say, for example, their first generation grandparent or parent who were the first to move here to the United States 
had more conservative standards of how they expected the participants to look dress act and they talked about how that affected them right they had more views on whitening the race or how a black woman should present herself in order to go about society a bit easier that was one sub theme of the overall theme of intergenerational progression of awareness the second sub theme is the direct opposite of the first sub theme so those who spoke about having more conservative grandparents or first generation family members also spoke about how the family members who were second or third generation so that have been in the U.S. maybe grew up in the U.S. had more liberating views of blackness and encouraging the participant to seek out beauty standards that were not Eurocentric that did not focus on the white gaze. The second theme was self-defining Afro-Latinidad so some women spoke about how they neglected after learning the term or if they had grown up with the term they would neglect the and or binary that a lot of research but also just society in general puts upon afro-latinx women so they talk about black women and latina women or you are either black or latina and not both right the conversation about that intersectionality has rarely been had and if it has it's only been about a year or two and we have a lot to catch up on so i got a lot of narratives about that about the women talking about what afro latinidad meant to them what it meant to have the term afro latinx the second sub theme was evaluating one's proximity to whiteness so some of my participants i'm I'd, i'd say about half of them grew up in predominantly white towns or attended predominantly white schools even up until college and that was a narrative within itself they all had individual experiences but there was an overall theme of how having to separate themselves or understand how their proximity to whiteness how close they were to whiteness was affecting their beauty standards and how they carried themselves or how much they had to push back on certain standards that were bestowed upon them but they had to reject the beauty standards that were being promoted in their predominantly white spaces. And lastly, the third theme that I will go over for this study is seeking black liberation. And to me, what as I coded and analyzed this data, I saw the way the participants sought out liberation in two different ways. So these sub-themes were the detachment from significance of hair. So not just saying that they, you know, they woke up and understood the implications of always having having to perm their hair, relax their hair, or wear their hair a certain way to match Eurocentric beauty standards, but the detachment of being forced to do something specific with their hair, right? So being able to explain that it's their hair and they can do whatever they decide to do with it and whatever's going to make their their hair healthy, right? And not necessarily meets any either racist or colorist or texturist uh, views on what hair should look like on black women and and Afro-Latinx women. 
The second sub-theme was challenging fetishization. So a lot of the women in the study spoke about how they encountered fetishization either through maybe having lighter skin or presenting themselves um, besides the stereotypical narrative of a black woman and having to reject any sort of approval um, or praise for being quote-unquote different than who others perceived a black woman to be. Those are the themes and sub-themes that I came up with and now we will listen to some of the narratives from the study. We will start with the first theme, intergenerational progression of awareness, and we'll hear from both sub-themes, right? We'll, We'll hear folks talk about their more conservative standards coming from the first generation in their family, and then the liberating views that come from the second and third generation parents that raise these women. Let's go. Yeah, so my grandma's, my Dominican grandma is a big fan of like white in the race. Like she was very happy that my mom married a white man. She's very happy that my sister's currently dating a white guy. So that she's big on like whitening the race and she doesn't understand systematic racism because it wasn't talked about when she was growing up. She's 90 years old now. So like we, like I said, my mom is she's been here since she was young so she's not like stuck in the original Haitian mindset that some people may say but when it comes to the three of us I feel like we all are kind of um modern enough to understand the differences and understand that there are different beauty sets that there are different beauty standards um that it's not just the European look it's not just the light-skinned woman look or whatever the case may be I feel like we all we all are not biased in that sense when it comes to like the rest of my family like so here we heard two different clips from two different women who talked about what it's like to the first one talked about what it's like to have a Dominican grandmother who was raised around that time where whitening the race was acceptable and then we heard a narrative from a Haitian woman where she talks about her mother encouraging blackness and black beauty standards and rejecting the narratives that the older generation in her Haitian family, um, Haitian and Dominican family, uphold. What I found very interesting here is the conversation that goes on about Haitian and Dominican populations. For example, um, within the docu-series that Henry Louis Gates Jr. published in 2011, there were many examples where we saw that there are Dominicans within the island that don't identify as black. And then we also saw that there are Haitians within the island that do not identify as Latinx. And of course, here we see that there is an overlap and that there are many historic implications as to why that is. There is a large erasure of black populations within the Latinx community, which is going to affect both the Dominican and the Haitian narrative. But then in ways that 
um, pins them against each other a lot of the time. So now we're going to get into the second theme, which is self-defining of Afro-Latinidad. So let's see what our participants had to say about that. Understanding, you know, and this is something that my mom has also like emphasized throughout my life is understanding that our specific, like, especially Puerto Rican and Dominican identities are very much so a blend of Africans, you know, um, through enslavement and from the indigenous people and from um, Spaniards from Spain. And I guess that um, after discovering the term Afro-Latino or Latina, it kind of gave me a sense of being like I finally fit in somewhere and I knew kind of like where I belong to and a specific term to describe myself when it came to just my identity and sort of. A lot of my friends are just of Latino descent. Um, and, you know, it's always weird because I feel like people look at me differently. And even in times when they're trying to help, I feel like they somehow exclude Black people. Like, I don't know if you saw the Latinos for Black Lives signs that kind of went around during the Black Lives Matter movement. And in that, like, when you say Latinos for Black Lives, it kind of excludes the fact that there are Black lives within the Latino community. So. So these recordings show how these women began to neglect the and or binary of being either Black or Latina right so a lot of the time we see research or in conversation that it's a lot of yes the black population and the latinx population but as you heard from the women who spoke that they recognized that that division and they speak up about it and they think about it and they put a lot of thought into well what about me because if I step in an all Latinx space that isn't reflective of my Latinidad, I'm going to speak up about it. I'm going to say that, well, I am black. The Latinos for black lives is a great example. Blackness is one. It's not one or the other. The recordings following up will talk about the second sub-theme of the larger theme, self-defining Afro-Latinidad. And in these coming up, you will hear a little bit about the women evaluating their proximity to whiteness. So whether that is geographically growing up in a predominantly white space and having to navigate your Afro-Latinidad and I guess how confusing that may be to some people due to the lack of knowledge of our existence and the erasure of blackness in Latinx communities, but also in terms of their self, right? right, An inner conflict with being a lighter-skinned woman, what that means, the privilege that that holds, and also the responsibilities that it holds being a lighter-skinned woman and advocating for and advocating and uplifting other Black and Latinx and Afro-Latinx women. So that is what the recordings coming up will talk about. Let's listen. And, and private schools as well, so like surrounded by predominantly wealthy white people as well. 
has like influenced just, I don't know, I guess like, yeah, the way we talk and the way we interact with people. And um, I've had like a lot of experiences where it just feeling like kind of caught in that middle, whereas like feeling not, not like Latina enough, you know what I mean? Like that kind of um, space. And so I would say that in that space as well, there's, there's some feeling of like displacement or, you know, or distance rather. Um, just in- within the community, I, I always understood like, okay, honestly, of course, you know, I live in a different space than a woman that is darker than me because that's just common sense. If, you know, colorism exists, of course, that's going to be within the black community as well. It wasn't until uh, I got to college, I realized um, how it really affects the black community too. Um, within us, like the struggle and like the different marriage rates between, you know, light skinned women and um, dark skinned women, uh, featurism, um, how more dark skinned people are stopped by the police than light skinned people. Um, and I think also just from my experience too, um, I learned about colorism by, you know, a few more microaggressions growing up in school, like, oh. Um... With these two testimonies that we've just heard we can kind of start to understand how beauty standards go beyond um attractiveness and actual you know beautification strategies it is about how one is perceived it is about how much weight is put into the way someone looks and how someone presents to affect how someone is treated and I think that's something that's really important that Afro-Latinx women can't forget is that we're not our bodies aren't treated as our own anymore we are threats we are a place where folks think that they can take and imitate and copy and take away from us and that's a lot of what the women are saying here is that that's not the case anymore. You know, before, as when they were younger, they were sort of allowing these things to happen because they didn't know what was going on. They didn't understand the greater context of being put in a box and people telling you what to do or people treating you a certain way because of who you are or even allowing others to put you on a pedestal because you look different than the norm of what Afro-Latinx or black folks or latinx folks or caribbean folks are supposed to look like now there's challenging there's a self-definition of who they are but also what their who their community is and the history behind their community so now going into our third and last theme we will be listening to some folks talking about the overall theme of seeking black liberation so first we're going to hear some very special snippets about a commonality in our culture that I've found um, through analyzing this data, which is the Black Barbie. So these two short these two short clips will talk a little bit about what it meant for these women as young girls to receive the Black Barbies and to um, play with Black Barbies and um, see themselves in such a beautiful portrayal. And then later, we'll talk a little bit about black liberation as a whole what it means to some folks and how it ties to the liberation movements and civil rights movements that we're seeing now and how a lot of that comes from women challenging 
this um of their oppression they're silencing the fetish fetish fetishization of their bodies and finding unity within the afro latinx community so first let's look at themes on the black barbie doing those things i started to realize what was the deeper reasoning behind it like why were relaxers even done to me in the first place? And in realizing that, I guess that that's where I started to put two and two together and realize that it was just sort of like, kind of like manipulative, the reason why it's done, the reason why so many people still do it. And I decided just, you know, from my own morals and values that it didn't feel right, so I wouldn't continue to. Because yeah, I, there yeah, I guess growing up also like very much trying to like emphasize to me that like you know about like you know black is beautiful like you know under like be confident in yourself and recognize it like like when I was growing up I only was allowed to have brown like Barbie dolls and baby dolls and things like that and so like trying and like the shows and stuff that I watched they really tried to make sure that that was all being well, that was more inclusive and diverse and and seeing and so I could see people like me. Um, and so that, in that way, that's also like influenced, I guess, yeah, how, um, how I understand like, yeah, beauty is as, even though despite like, I guess, obviously social and external like norms and stuff like that have also influenced me, but while also recognizing that, um, yeah, that, you know, that beauty is more expansive. A thing for me as a kid, um, one icon, which is actually very funny, I guess you can't count it as an icon. When I was like maybe five, I got a birthday Barbie cake and it was a black Barbie. I still have it somewhere here. And on the cake, she was sitting in a big pink dress, her hair straight black. Just, I remember my birthday wish that year was for me to wake up the next day and have hair like that Barbie. I love hearing about other Afro-Latinx women having the black Barbie because when I was eight I also received my first black Barbie and she was the holiday Barbie she had dark skin she was wearing a really beautiful red dress and I remember thinking to myself I'm gonna collect these and I'm gonna put them up against my wall and it's gonna remind me that I'm beautiful right even if the folks around me may not think so or may not treat me as valuable as I am so hearing these stories um, and having that commonality with the folks that I interviewed was really nice for me. And now we're going to get into the last two audio clips that talk about liberation in its totality and how they challenged and how they've been challenging without them even knowing since they were young um, the different societal pressure to conform to Eurocentricity. Let's see. The other Asian, the Asian kids and the other biracial kid in the class, they were willing to go with the mainstream and the mainstream was the white community. However, I was too stubborn. I'm like, I'm not just white. Like I might have not realized what I was doing, but I'm like, I am of multiple things and I am okay with that. So I'm not just gonna ignore one part of me for the sake of being included in this small clique that won't matter in 20 years. Oh. Yeah, there's just been a lot of like liberation movements going on lately and it's made me feel empowered a little and also a little sad that we're still having to go through these liberation movements at this time period. 
Um, as for self-agency, yeah, I think that, you know, be, feeling confident in myself and breaking free of all the restraints that, you know, all these communities have placed upon me, like as a woman, as a Latina, as a Black woman, I think that they all have certain restraints that like intersect upon all of us. So um, breaking free of these, I think that they will help me be not only like a more powerful person, but just overall better for, I think we'll create a better society for us all if we can all break free of these restraints that they've these last two clips are very special to me because not only does it show that one participant found autonomy in their voice and the bravery to really go against the dominant narrative of Eurocentricity at a very young age, uh, but also that she was able to stick by that even after during our interview, she continuously spoke about how she's been in predominantly white spaces her entire, entire life, which becomes very difficult to sustain that same mindset that your blackness is worthy and it's valued and it should be just as primitive as any other culture, right? But the thing about Afro-Latinidad and her being multiracial is that there's a constant battle, right? Or there's a constant pressure to choose and she chose not to. And that final clip pretty much sums up my study very well in which she highlights that Afro-Latinx women receive con consistent pressure through their communities to subscribe to restricting identities. And things like whitening the race, Latinos for Black Lives, all simulate the same erasure of Black Latinos, where we are part of the movement towards liberation, and we play a very great role in it, specifically because we are also fighting this battle within our latinx and caribbean countries and with that that pretty much sums up my data and the themes that i wanted to showcase in the results of my study so just a recap we heard the narratives of afro-latinx women who are in college and they spoke about how the intergenerational progression of awareness played dual roles between the first generation family members being those who were perpetuating the anti-blackness and the fetishization of lighter skin and and whiteness onto them versus the second and third generation parents and influences that sort of gave them you know those um black barbies that gave them symbols of beauty that paid off in the end because now that they're older they have an understanding of the different oppressive systems that are keeping them from loving themselves loving their skin loving their body which in turn makes them feel like they're inadequate to even fight the different forces that are systemic and have indoctrinated our family members for so long right that a lot of the times it's hard to even communicate these things to our family members or to folks who do not have that same liberating standpoint amongst the Afro-Latinx community. So this episode has gone a little bit um, longer than the rest. So I will end it here and say that I appreciate everyone for 
listening this far for having an interest in the data collection process but also the actual data that came from my qualitative interviewed interviews and i hope that y'all enjoy the last episode that will put it all together and give some examples that we see in the world every day of what these results can do and what research on afro-latinx women can contribute to the world thank you for listening bye